Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Um, Father, we come to you today in need of your presence, in need of your spirit to refresh and renew and restore us, to fill our hearts and soften them and turn them toward you. And so we pray that you would speak to us by your word. We, we pray um, that you would help us to, to see the beauty of the gospel on display, that it would be fresh and bright and lovely to us. We pray that, that you would help us to see a diagnosis of our own hearts, but now as we see a turn in the letter we've been studying, that, that you would show us the brilliance of the hope that we have. And so we lift this time to you in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our hope, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in the book of Romans together. If you have a Bible, you can open it up with me to Romans chapter 3. We'll be in the back half the end of chapter 3 today. And today's text, as we look at it, um, it's, these are the kind of texts that, I'll, to be honest, are a little bit intimidating to me as your pastor and as a preacher, because we come to a passage today that at least one commentator said is the most important paragraph ever written. Not in the Bible, <laughs> ever. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that this paragraph, these few verses, are the chief point and the very central place of the epistle to the Romans and of the whole Bible. And so today we turn to Romans chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 21 and go through the end of the chapter. Now this is also, so in this passage, to remind you of where we've been so far... The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Rome. He had not been to Rome yet, but wanted to get there. And as he did, as he looked ahead, he starts by proclaiming the brilliance of the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ, which he calls the gospel, which means good news. And so he proclaims that, and then he says, I'm eager to get there. I can't wait to get to Rome to preach this good news to you. And he told, he told the Romans because he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed, and we need to understand that the wrath of God is being revealed. And so if you've been part of our series so far, you know that, that the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 and most of chapter 3 is laying out for us the case that God's wrath is rightly revealed against every one of us. And so it start, he starts off by, by showing us that, that God turns us over to our own idolatry and he turns us over to the desires of our hearts, and that is the judgment of God that it leads to twisted sexuality and mindsets and, and twisted religion. And then he shows fully that, that we cannot be saved on our own by the good works that we do, even works according to God's righteous law. And so last week, we came to the climax of that section, which says, no one is righteous, no, not one. And I promised you that eventually the letter would take a turn. And so here it is. Now, today is also the first Sunday of Lent. It started on Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. Lent is, a, is traditionally a time of waiting and lament, fasting and self-denial, and, and I think it's fitting for us in this season as we look ahead toward Easter 
to start with a passage that's so central in our study of Romans and central to the biblical narrative as a whole because it shows us that we've seen all the depths of our hopelessness and need, and today we see the heights of the glory and the grace of God. And so even as we begin this section, or even as we begin the season that's so often set aside for fasting, my hope is that you today will be able to allow your heart to feast on the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the most important goal we can have during this season is to have our hearts set more fully on him. And so what we see today is that we are redeemed in Jesus Christ. And so Romans 3, verse 20 says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified, declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul has just said, no one is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, everyone is lost on their own. And verse 21 begins with a glorious start. It says, but now. No one is righteous, but now. No one can achieve righteousness through the law, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God a God of the Jews only? He is, not, is he not also a God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so these, these, this section that we just read, it's so tightly packed, so theologically dense. And so what we're going to do today is simply walk through and try to understand some of the terminology that, that the Apostle Paul throws out there because there's a lot of like four and five syllable theological words that can get confusing for us. So I want to make sure that we have clarity today and then that clarity we might begin to see the beauty of what's in front of us. And I'm not going to make it with the jacket today. So we're, we're just going to... It is too warm. We're just going to stop playing that game. All right. <laughs> now... Let's get into it and roll our sleeves up and get to work. <laughs> so the context here, the righteousness of God is manifested for us. And it's, that means it's showing up for us. And, and it's showing up like the sun rises over the horizon. It's being manifest for us. And it's being manifest, notice, apart from the law. And so it's not the law of God that shows the fullness of the righteousness of God. The fullness of God's righteousness is apart from the law. But it's not, it's, the law isn't exempt from that. The law 
was a prelude to it. As I think it was Augustine that said that in the New Testament, what God did through Jesus is in the old concealed, and the Old Testament is in the new revealed. And so the law looks ahead to and anticipates and bears witness to the fullness of God's righteousness, but it doesn't show it off completely because his righteousness comes through faith alone and Christ alone for everyone who believes. This is great news. Because what we've seen so far is that none of us is righteous on our own. We're hopeless on our own. And so we have hope because the righteousness of God is given to us simply through faith. And you see in our passage today who's responsible for our justification. It's not that we are so good that we've earned God's righteousness or earned justification, even earned our, the ability for that and access to that in faith in Jesus. It says that God is both just and justifier. He is the one who acted. He is the one who who declares us righteous to the one who has faith in Christ and tells us that he has looked past our former sin, but no longer. And so the reality is today that every one of us, having heard God's word, now stands without excuse, that there's a call to us in this text that every one of us has to respond to. Now, let's start with that last paragraph, and we're going to come backwards. Because then Paul, after showing the beauty of this theological truth, then does what he's done so far through the letter and does so often in his letters. He anticipates the questions and challenges that might come in. He says, so what comes of our boasting? Well, uh, our boasting's excluded. So by a law of works, or what kind of law are you talking about? No, by the law of faith. So you know, is God the God of the Jews only? No, he's also the God of the Gentiles. Do we overthrow the law? So he's saying, does this mean the law is nothing? He's saying, no, actually, we're upholding it. He's saying, because what the law shows us, he's saying, we believe in the fullness of the law. If you're going to believe that God's word is law, then what the law shows us is that none of us is actually righteous, because none of us can actually live up to it. We know this because we can't even live up to the Ten Commandments. Many of us might not even be able to name the Ten Commandments, But if you start to look through them, I mean, it starts with, you'll have no other gods before me. The second commandment is you won't make any idols. And so 20% of the Ten Commandments are essentially the same thing. Don't allow the affections of your heart to be drawn to worship anything else, and we are all excluded immediately. Don't lie, don't covet. We're all excluded immediately. Honor your father and mother. None of us has fulfilled that perfectly. We were all teenagers once. And, and so within this, our boasting then is empty. We have nothing to stand on. Now, this is a hard thing for us because we live in an arrogant, arrogant place. And you have had your own pride and arrogance fueled in your life. And that's what comes up. Like, how often do you find yourself updating your resume when you're not looking for a job? We, we are, we're in a place where you have to sell yourself, you have to advance yourself, where in, if you're going to stay in D.C. long term, for many of you, that means you're going to bounce from job to job in, in the right timing to take the next opportunity so that you can advance up the ladder. And those things in their own aren't themselves wrong or bad, but, but the problem is that there, it may reveal something with every one of our hearts, and we boast in all kinds of things. We are creative in our arrogance. And so it might be your education, where you went to school, what kind of degree you have. It might be the experience you have or the connectedness you have or the offices you've worked in. It might be, it might be your physique it might, and, and your, the, the pursuit of physical health. It might be the, the numbers in your bank account and the wealth that you have. It might be relationships and connections. It might be your intelligence, maybe your empathy, 
We are creative in our pride. Now, remember in this context, too, that as Paul's speaking into this and talking about the emptiness of our boasting, that he was also speaking into a context that was racially and ethnically divided. And so that's where even here he's saying, so is God just a God of the Jews? Well, no. Is he a God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of course. He went through, you know, chapter one was showing the sins that, were, that the Jewish community would have thought were more typical of Gentiles. And so he exposed those and then turned it toward the Jewish people in the church and said, no, 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 you don't escape this evil. Either. And so he was trying to show that before God, everyone is, that these ethnic divides get, get foolish before God because every one of us stands before him without excuse and with no room for boasting. And so we need to hear that because the, the same kind of divides happen now. We are still, as people, as human beings, divided on all kinds of lines, including ethnic lines. And those divides, when, they, when we include other people in our pride and arrogance, we come together and band together, and that leads toward tribalism. It's just collective pride. <laughs> it's the same issue, is we find people that have the same kind of background, culture, desires, hopes, dreams, fears, anxieties as us, and say, oh, you too, let's be together and, and talk about and band together to know how much the others around us have missed it. And, this, this, and the deeper problem, and all of it's empty, and that's what it shows us, all of this is empty. And the deeper problem in our boasting, though, isn't just its emptiness, think about it this way. When we're boasting in the things that we have accomplished, when we find ourselves proud and arrogant about the things that we are and the things that we've gained, you know, there's, there's even an expression that we have for this, that we, you know, we can take pride of being a self-made man or a self-made woman. I don't think any of us says, like, look at what happened in my life. I am a product of my parents setting me up. I'm a product of other people giving me opportunities. I really haven't earned any of this. We don't usually tell the story that way of our lives. We show hardship and want to show that we've pulled ourselves up and we've earned everything we have and, and earned it through our abilities and our grit and our work ethic. And every one of us has that kind of temptation that we want to present ourselves as self-made. But here's the problem that gets to the core of all of it and shows its idolatry, is that if we consider ourselves a self-made man or a self-made woman, we need to remember that every one of us is wired naturally to worship our maker. And so there's emptiness in our boasting. But God's righteousness, his holiness, his perfection has been shown. And this language that has been made manifest, manifested apart from the law, is beautiful, poetic language. Again, like the rising of the sun over the horizon. And so it's not that the law is bad or wrong. It just looks ahead to and anticipates something better in Christ. All of Scripture whispers his name. And that's what we see next in verse 23, is that there is no distinction before God. All have sinned, and all fall short, short of God's glory. Now again, remember in this context, I, my, and this is one of the, I think one of the dangers for those of you who grew up in the church. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard this paragraph before. You've read this paragraph before. You've heard it a lot. Some of you have been taught the Romans road for evangelism, where you start, you know, in, in Romans 3.23 to prove that the person you're talking to is a sinner. And then you go to Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then you go on to Romans 8 and Romans 12, and so there's this pathway you can take through Romans. And so some of you, this is such a familiar text that it may lose some of its impact and its beauty, and, so, and some of its cut. And so it's, it's possible, and this is one of the dangers that 
that I think my eyes were open to just a couple of years ago as I heard a theologian talking about this, that when we read, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we have a tendency to read that only individually, or at least I have in the past, and thought, okay, I have sinned, I fall short of the glory of God, you have sinned, you fall short of the glory of God, and you. Here, though, remember that this is a collective and Paul is talking, and this is specifically in the context, in the ethnic divide between Jew and Greek. He's saying, all of you, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your culture, regardless of your religious background, all of you have sinned. All of you fall short of God's glory. And so it's a, it's a communal issue first that also is true individually. But we need to hear this because in the immediate context, what he's saying is every ethnicity has sinned. Dr. Tony Evans talks about this. He, he, in, in his book, Oneness Embraced, he said, God's kingdom is not black. God's kingdom is not white. God's kingdom is not Hispanic, nor is it Asian, Middle Eastern, or Indian. God did not come to take sides. God came to take over. And until we bow beneath the overarching rules set before by the ruler in his realm, we will continue to live defeated lives in the face of walls too thick to crumble and an enemy looming too large for us to overcome. And so every one of us has sinned. And every one of us, the things we find our identity in and our tribalistic identities in, fall short. We are sinners by nature and by choice, and, the, and this is the concept of total depravity. Now again, we have spent the first three and a half, or two and a half chapters, almost three full chapters, laying out this case for you. And so I'm not gonna belabor that too much today, uh, but, but, it's, but he's reminding us, this is the summary of what it has come before this that we are totally depraved. And this is an important thing too, because I think this gets confusing sometimes. Some of you hear the word total depravity, and it's like a theological, some of, it's a theological trigger for you. You're like, that sounds like Calvinism, so I reject it. Hold on. <laughs> and I think, because I think we have an impression that total depravity means that we are as wicked as we can be. And none of us is, right? We can all think of things we could have done that would be more selfish, that would be meaner. That would, we can all think of moments in the last few days where we've actually shown restraint and held back on things that we wanted to say. And, and so I think when we hear total depravity, there's a tendency to be like, nah, I'm, I'm trying. That's not what it means. In total depravity, I heard one person say that if... It means that if sin is the color blue, you're a smurf. Like it means that there's no part of our being that has not been impacted by the reality of our own rebellion and sin. Every aspect of us. Our lives have been colored by that. And we miss the mark on what God has set up for us. This is what it says, all fall short of God's glory. Uh, this one, I think, is, is helpful too because, okay, all have sinned. We know that. Now, we all fall short of God's glory, and so this gets into the sin by nature, by choice, and we can't live up to the standard that has been set for us in the law. Now, I, this is helpful for me because I'm naturally slightly competitive. Um, we, had, we, we went on an elders' retreat this weekend. Thank you if you were praying for us. We had a good weekend. Um, as part of what we did, we went and played disc golf together, um, which none of us had ever done before, which meant a level playing field. And I didn't realize that the disc golf course was a sand dune, and I was in this boot that worked like a scoop. <laughs> <laughs> 
And as we got into the second hole, and we were saying, like, what did you get on that hole? And everybody was like, yeah, this is my number, this is my number. And I was like, well, how are we keeping track of this? And they were like, what do you mean? Like, we didn't even make it the 18 holes because one of us was in a boot taking on sand. And, <laughs> and even in that moment, I pulled out my iPhone and started a note, a new note in my iPhone to be able to rate down the numbers we got on each hole. And I told the guys, because I want to win. <laughs> um, so I might have an issue there. So today I was thinking about this, that we fall short of God's standard, and this is a helpful thing for me. So if you, have, if you tend toward being more competitive, then we need to realize, I think it might be helpful for you to realize how short we fall even of, of human accomplishments, let alone the glory of God if that's our standard. And so I looked up some records today, I thought it was interesting. Um, a pole vault record. Do you know what the world record is for a pole vault? I can't imagine a pole sending my body over a bar. <laughs> But the world record for it is 20 feet and 3.3 inches. That is a crazy distance to vault into the air. Maybe that's not impressive to you. You know what the world record is for a long jump? 29 feet and four and a quarter inches. 29 feet. Like, that's longer than this stage that somebody jumped on their own. Bench press, I was looking that up, and the world record bench press, initially the number I saw was 415, and I was like, I, I've come close to that in my life, I was starting to feel good about myself, until I saw that it was kilograms. <laughs> <laughs> that is 739.6 pounds. I don't know how you could do 739.6 and not 740, but 739.6 itself <laughs> sounds like a lot. Um, the, so some of you are like, I don't know, these appeal to me. Maybe you're a runner. The, you know what the marathon world record is right now? It was set in Berlin. Two hours, one minute, 39 seconds. That's 26.2 miles, for those of you keeping track. So th these are accomplishments that we all fall laughably short of. Like, it's not close, but they're human accomplishments. What we're being shown in Romans 3 is that the standard that we are held to in the end when we will stand before God is the standard of his glory. The same, this is what the Israelites saw in Exodus as they wandered around in the wilderness, that they saw the glory of God in the cloud and in the pillar of fire. They saw the glory of God fill the tabernacle so that they couldn't come close to it. That Moses, after experiencing the glory and the goodness of God, was radiating light, and the people were scared of Moses who had encountered it. That's the standard we're held to, and we fall short all of us and every one of us. But here's where the letter of Romans turns that, there, that the good news is that God is just and God is justifier. God's work in justification is more than our, and this is what we need to understand, because we have a hard time with God's wrath, and we've talked about God's wrath in the previous passages. We have a hard time with God's wrath because we don't know how to think about God being angry, and it makes us uncomfortable, but what we need to remember is that what's presented for us in the biblical storyline, in the gospel, is that God is the one who also stepped in to give us an opportunity to actually be called righteous. Yes, he he is just. Yes, he will. All human wickedness must answer to him. It cannot go unpunished. Thank God for that. And he is the justifier. 
that gives us his righteousness totally undeserved by those he gives it to. And so we need to hear this because what we see in Romans as we're going to walk through this letter is that God's work in justification is more than just our own individual conversion stories. That it's, yes, that's true for us, but the ultimate end of the gospel is not just that I am declared righteous and I get into heaven. The end of the gospel is, is much bigger than that. It tells us that, when, that it's the identification of all people here, that is, all have sinned and all are justified by his grace as a gift. Everyone is welcomed in, elect Jews and Gentiles from every tribe and tongue and nation. And that leads us then into Romans 5 to 8, which shows us that all things are going to be renewed. That the earth itself is groaning, longing for the day of its redemption, and that all things are going to be restored. It's cosmological renewal, not just our individual renewal. And that leads to Romans 12, which calls us then that we're called to love one another because the God who justifies is renewing all things to his glory, and he, by his spirit, empowers us to step into loving, reconciled community with one another so that the divisions and the tribalism that destroys us is obliterated by the cross and we're united together by the one God who can help. We're given three images of this. The first is forensic. It's a courtroom that God justifies sinners. And so we're taken into the courtroom first. This is a courtroom term that we stand before the judge guilty. That if we stand in our own actions by what we have done, every one of us stands not just accused, but guilty before him, deserving punishment for our own rebellion and sin. All of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory. But the gift we're given is that he declares us righteous in Christ Jesus. That's what justification is, a declaration that you are righteous. And so the, the debt that is owed from what you have accrued by your own rebellion and sin is taken care of. The, the, it's, it's nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ, and you then stand in his righteousness. Theologians call this the doctrine of double imputation, that what happened on the cross is Christ was the perfect sacrifice for us, in our place, for our sin. And so as he was put to death, he took the penalty from, for our sin, for our rebellion. It was placed on him. And then the second transaction is that we were given his righteousness, and so now, if you have faith in Jesus, you stand not in your own self-made self-righteousness, but in, instead in the righteousness of Christ that has been given to you and credited to you. And so this is the, the justification of God that only comes by his grace as a gift, that he gives you this in Jesus. And we don't, we're uncomfortable with grace. It makes us uneasy. You know, this is, it's amazing to me when I'll like, go and grab a cup of coffee with somebody and buy a cup of coffee and then I'll feel my phone buzz and it, it was Venmo for three fifty. And I'm like, can't I just buy you a cup of coffee? Why do we have to settle the account right away? You know, when, when we get a gift from somebody that was unexpected and they just want to give us something, maybe you're not like me, but for me, it's, I'm usually like, oh gosh, like, what do I owe you now? <laughs> like, is this... Is there, that was so thoughtful of you. I feel so ashamed that I'm so thoughtless. 
We have a reciprocal concept in most of our relationships with people. So the idea of just receiving grace, especially with something as deep as, the, as our deepest issue and need in our lives of, of taking care of our own sin and unrighteousness, just is dissonant with our competitive natures. But Christ's righteousness has been credited to us. And so there, I, don't, I don't know that there's a clear parallel we have for this. The closest thing I could think of is um, and this is way less, and I understand that. Every illustration breaks down, and this one probably will quickly. But let's try it out. <laughs> um, I have I travel enough for, for different meetings and things that it was worth it, and I have TSA pre-check, which is amazing. Except at DCA, which often the pre-check line is longer because DC. <laughs> and, but an amazing thing happens that I've noticed when I have taken my family with me. So in a couple weeks, I have some meetings that I'm supposed to go to, and I'm bringing Zoe with me, my oldest, because it's her spring break. And if I buy our plane tickets together and put in my, um, my pre-screened number, do you know what happens to Zoe's ticket? She gets TSA pre-check. Why? <laughs> like, that doesn't make any sense. She didn't pay the money, she didn't go and get interviewed, she didn't get fingerprinted, she didn't do the application and have her background checked, though, you know, at 14, you just don't know what you're gonna find. <laughs> but why does she get included? Well, she, gets, she is credited with my pre-screening status, and so when we arrive at the line, she could go and choose the other line and wait in line in the purgatory that is TSA. <laughs> or she could come with me and just walk through with her shoes on. Now, Within this, did she go through the process? No. Did she earn it? No. But it was purchased for her, and she's given status. And so there's something there of an echo of what happens in our justification. A second portrait that we see is that God redeems sinners. And so we go from the courtroom to economics. This is the economic atonement. And this, this is language that was used in the ancient world, particularly in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, to talk about purchasing someone out of slavery. And so slavery was most often bond service in the Old Testament. And so people, there wasn't like bankruptcy protection and debt and credit cards. And so if somebody became indebted, they could work off that debt and they could be purchased out of that debt. And so this is a major theme of the book of Exodus. And we studied Exodus back in the fall. In Exodus, we see this. The major theme of Exodus is redemption. When God brings the people through into Mount Sinai, what does he say? He says, You've, you yourselves have seen how I redeemed you. I brought you out of Egypt on eagle's wings. And so it's this idea that God purchased his people out of slavery to the Egyptians to free them and bring them into the promised land where they would find rest. This then became the imagery for the Jewish people when they were in exile in Babylon and in Assyria, that the language was looking forward to the next exodus, when God would redeem his people out of exile and bring them back into his rest. But then we get to Hebrews 4, and it shows us that Moses and Joshua never provided the fullness of God's rest that he promised. And so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and what we're promised here in this text is that, that we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we are justified by his grace as a gift, and we are, our justification comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so this is the, the imagery. Then when Jesus had his transfiguration on, up on the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter and James and John were with him, he's, their eyes were opened to see Jesus in his glory. 
And there with him, he was having a conversation with Moses and Elijah, and they were talking about the next exodus. That's the language in the text. And so they were talking about what he was going to accomplish to ultimately redeem God's people, not just from physical slavery under human beings, but from slavery to sin and death and Satan himself to pay the cost for us to be saved, for us to be freed, for us to be released. And so God redeems sinners. Yes, it's a courtroom theme. We are justified, declared righteous, and another facet of the atonement is economic that we have been purchased from slavery to sin. And so this is what redemption means. Now, what did Jesus redeem us from? Well, he redeemed us from the curse of the law, that we can never live up to the standard that's put there, put down for us in the law, and then he redeemed us from the curse of the law to live transformed lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus redeemed us from Satan and from demons into a new life that's made possible because we've been forgiven. He's redeemed us from our sin and our own flesh to live in a new life of freedom by the power of his spirit. He's redeemed us from being dead to being alive. And, and so this is what the hope is, but it goes beyond that, that we have a future with God eternally. And to, and to, we look ahead to the return of Jesus, and we look ahead to a resurrection body and a new life in the new heavens and new earth. And so we, we've been redeemed. We've been purchased from slavery to sin. And we're going to get into this more in Romans chapter 6 in particular. Now, the third picture we get is that God has made propitiation for sinners. So that's the next line, that, that we, we are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so this is another, this is a, a five-syllable word that usually doesn't come up in polite dinner conversation. What is propitiation? What does it mean to propitiate? Well, this takes us, the first one is a courtroom setting. It's forensic. The second portrait we have is economic, that we are redeemed from slavery. And the third is a sacrificial imagery. It's atonement imagery. It's religious imagery. One commentator said that to propitiate a god is to offer a sacrifice that turns aside the god's wrath. This is how pagan perspectives are on what we do for the gods. And so you can read this in all kinds of ancient literature, that when it doesn't rain, you go and make a sacrifice to the god who can bring rain, when it's, and, 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 and so on. And when you don't have good crops, you go and make a sacrifice to the gods responsible for crops. And so it's, it's to offer a sacrifice that turns aside the, that god's wrath. Anyone who believes in a god knows that they need some way to stay on their friendly side of that god. And so they give gifts to that God, or serve in the temple, or give alms, and if God is angry with them, they pay a price, or make a sacrifice, or find some way to soothe the God's anger. They propitiate him. And so a pagan view of propitiation is, what do I have to do to make this God feel satisfied? My goodness, how often do we live in a pagan view of God? thinking, what do I need to do to get him to respond the way I want him to? Things aren't really going the way I want him to. Maybe, maybe, why is he angry with me? Do I just need to try harder? Do I need to, do I need to go to and serve more at church? Do I need to give more money? Do I need to, what is, what is it that I need to do? And so we turn to good things 
things that God does call us toward in obedience, but we begin to look at those things moralistically as a way to propitiate God and keep him from being angry with us. And so I think we can too often, we have this view, like if we think about what does God look like when he's looking at you, like too often we think that, that he's kind of angry and probably, probably, you know, looking with his arms folded and, and just waiting to rearrange circumstances or with like a cosmic zap button to be like, yeah, he messed that one up. And so we, we approach God in a way to say, how can I placate him? How can I propitiate him? How can I keep him keep on his good side? How do I make sure that, that I'm doing enough that I get the opportunities that I want? And, and that is a pagan view of God that is opposed to the gospel. What we're told is that is here is that who put forward the propitiation? Look at look at the text. Look at verse 25. Who put forward the propitiation? It doesn't say, come to God and put forward the sacrifice to make him happy. It says, it's Christ whom God put forward is propitiation by his blood. God is righteous and holy. This is the Christian view. He's not just moody. And, get it, and he doesn't just go into a rage against people. He is, he is righteous and holy, and he is the one that provided the sacrifice. He is the one himself who paid the cost. God's mercy is extended by his grace. Grace is a gift that we don't deserve, and so we see that, that he gives us justification. He gives us right standing. We see that in redemption, that economically he gives us the cost of our own sin and death and pays that for us. But now we see God's incredible mercy that we don't get what we deserve, that the wrath of God is taken from us because Christ has taken it fully on himself, God in the flesh. So he didn't leave us to try to propitiate his wrath and anger on our own. Instead, it was God himself that took on flesh to pay the cost for us. This is why the news is so good. Yes, God is just. Yes, he is righteous. Yes, we are all sinners who have no hope of measuring up to his glory. But we don't have to do the best we can to try to earn that because we never will. None of us in this room are going to bench press 740 pounds. None of us are going to live up to God's glory. None of us are going to be able to hit that measure, but Christ came in the fullness of God's righteousness and holiness and took God's wrath and made the propitiation for us so that when God looks at us, he's not angry with his arms folded. He looks at us with the love and affection that he has for his son. That's why it's amazing that, that Jesus calls us to pray to God as our father. We are sons and daughters, brothers and sisters together able to come into the warm embrace of the one who loves us. Now, the fourth reality then, the, we have these three portraits, the fourth reality that God is just and just fire is that this is by the blood of Christ on the cross. And so all of this, by his blood, and so it, that, it, that is how we are justified, that is how we are redeemed, that is how we have propitiation, is by the blood of Jesus, received by faith. And this is the importance, the, the central reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is why when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he said, I resolved to come to you with no human wisdom, without eloquence, and just proclaim simply to you Jesus and him crucified, because that is the power of God. It is foolishness to those who look for wisdom. It is empty 
believe to those who look for a sign from God, but this is the centrality of the gospel. If we lose the cross, we lose Christianity as a whole. This is not a metaphor. This is not just some mythology that was, that was written. Jesus was killed under Pontius Pilate on a cross outside of the city of Jerusalem on, on Golgotha Hill, and he was laid in a tomb and on the third day was raised to life. If those events happen, it changes everything for us because we are given justification and redemption and propitiation by his blood on the cross. And the only thing we have to do is to receive it through faith. Then it's to be received by faith. And all this shows God's righteousness because in his patience and forbearance, he passed over our former sins. It was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and justifier to the one who has faith in Jesus. So like Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of works. Why? Well, this brings us back to where we started. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's by grace through faith that we are saved so that we can't boast. And so the call to us today is uncomfortable because we can't control it, we can't take credit for it, we can't guarantee it for others. We, we, we think that the opposite of boasting in our lives is shame, but that's not what the gospel tells us. It tells us that the opposite of boasting is an acknowledgement of our reality, and it's by grace through faith that we have hope for salvation. And so what does that all mean for us? Church, as we bring this to a close, well, it means that we are freed from using our boasting to measure up to God. It means that we are freed from using our boasting to, in the race of competing against human beings. We are freed from the pressure of trying to one-up somebody else. We are freed from the fear of losing our place in God's eyes because it was given to us in Christ by God who is just and justifier. We are freed from anxiety over our own souls before God because it's not our righteousness that earns our place, but it's Christ's that's given to us. And that means that we are freed in our lives to love people with the love that God has and see people through his eyes. And we are freed to lay ourselves down and live self-sacrificially as we follow Christ in his calling on us. That we are freed to stand and face Satan and his accusations boldly, and that means we're freed from the chains of shame that, that just hold down so many of our souls. We are freed to stand and acknowledge the reality of who we are unashamedly because it's not in our greatness and morality, it's in the greatness of our Savior that we have hope. Martin Luther um, somewhat famously had like shouting matches um, late in the night that would, were described and that he would describe where he would, he would be, feel the accusations of the devil over him, saying, Martin, you are a liar, greedy, lecherous, a blasphemer, you a hypocrite, you cannot stand before God. And these things, these accusations that Luther would feel, he would respond, well, yes, I am. And indeed, Satan, you do not know the half of it. I've done much worse than that, and if you care to give me your full list, I can no doubt add to it and help make it more complete. But you know what? My Savior has died for all my sins. 
Those you mentioned, those I could add, and indeed those I have committed, but am so wicked that I am unaware of having done so. It doesn't change the fact that Christ has died for all of them. His blood is sufficient. And on the day of judgment, I shall be exonerated because he has taken all my sins on himself and clothed me in his own perfect righteousness. This is the hope we have. So what are you waiting for today? Those of you who haven't turned to Christ, where are you finding your identity that's more secure than what he's accomplished for you on the cross? Those of you who are Christians, why do you continue to treat God like a pagan deity and think that you need to posture yourself to manipulate him like a genie in a bottle? That if, you, if you just do things the right way, you get your wishes fulfilled. Turn to Christ. Be freed. Let the shadow that's over you lift because the sun has broken through. The righteousness of God has been made manifest among us supremely in the cross of Jesus Christ. Turn to him and you'll be saved. Father, help us. Because our own hearts still push stubbornly against even the beauty of grace and the hope of mercy. Help us. We, we don't even know the depths of our own wickedness and that which we know is plenty enough. And so would you help us to turn and rely fully on you, that you are just and that you are the justifier. We thank you that you've given us the gift of Christ's righteousness, that you've given us the gift of our own redemption, and that you've given us the mercy that propitiation has been made on our behalf.